Just wanted to let everyone know in this episode, there is a content warning. We do discuss topics related to mental health, including depression and suicide. If you or a loved one need mental health support, there are resources available. To reach the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, call 988. Hello and welcome to the Delco Skate Park Coalition podcast. The Delco Skate Park Coalition is a nonprofit organization of skate enthusiasts, parents, and disability rights advocates looking to build adaptive and inclusive skate parks in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Erin Lopez, and we are the podcast that covers all things about skateboarding, skate parks, and not just skate parks, but ADA, accessible, adaptive all wheels, and inclusive skate parks in Delco and beyond. Honored to be joined by Tony Coelho. Tony is a former congressman from California. While serving in Congress, Tony worked with disability rights advocates to sponsor the Americans with Disabilities Act. After leaving politics, Tony continued to work for disability rights and served on the board of the Epilepsy Foundation and the board for the American Association of People with Disabilities. Tony, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It's great to be with you. So. I would love to start with just a conversation about your role um, and working with getting the, um, the ADA passed. And so the ADA is the Americans with Disabilities Act. This was really key legislation that changed the lives of millions of people in the United States. Um, you were a congressman at the time, uh, and I just would love to kind of hear how you were introduced to disability rights. Well, it started when I was 16 years old. I uh, had an automobile accident on my family's dairy farm. Uh, we were in a pickup truck and it swerved off the canal bank and into the canal, hit my head. Um, at the time, I just had a severe headache and was fine and continued uh, on the farm, milking cows every morning, every night, all that stuff that you do. Uh, then about a year later, I was in the barn uh, milking and uh, the next thing I know, I uh, woke up, I was in bed. Um, and my brother had carried me from the barn to the house, and I had just had a grand mal seizure. Um, we didn't know what it was, obviously. Um, my so your family just, you had an unresponsive episode, and your family didn't know at all what no, had happened to you. They were, they're, they're, they were both dead now, but they were uh, Portuguese-Americans, um, um, sixth grade education, mm-hmm. um, very culturally Portuguese and hardworking. And, um, and they uh, were told by the doctor uh, that he thought it was epileptic, thought it was a seizure. Um, but in uh, Catholic tradition and Portuguese tradition, um, they were told that if you had epilepsy, you were possessed by the devil. And that God was oh, punishing wow. uh, the family by having me have these uh, spells so that everybody knew that this family had committed a major sin. Now, I knew none of this at this time. Okay. So uh, basically, I had this passing out spells. They then went to other doctors to prove that this doctor was wrong, uh, and those doctors said the same thing. But none of the doctors talked to me as a patient and, a, and as 
So you're not 70. even in any of these conversations? No, none of these conversations. Well, doctors in those days didn't talk to kids, you yeah, know? Yeah, um, And in, today they still don't, but in those days they definitely didn't. And so I never heard what they said. My parents said, well, they think it's a lack of calcium, they think it's a lack of this or whatever. So after three doctors that all uh, agreed, now that I know it, uh, that it was epilepsy, my parents then took me to witch doctors. And so uh, I ended up going to these witch doctors that you would go into a room and the lights would go off and candles were burning and uh, they would pour hot oil on your forehead and on your chest. and, and uh, That must have been quite an experience for you well, as a 16-year-old. A 16-year-old, 17-year-old was doing all this. It was scary to yeah. begin with. and. At first, you know, I didn't know why I was passing out, right? So you want to find out, you want to have it cured or whatever. So you're willing to try anything, right? So uh, the first one, it didn't work. So I went to a second one, uh, it didn't work. I uh, went to a third one, was, and this one was a Portuguese-American male, so that's supposed to work, right? So I went there and he said the solution was to put a raw egg under your arm, in your armpit, hold it there for 45 minutes to an hour, and if it turned black, uh, the spirits had left. If it didn't turn, problem not solved. I was furious at that point, because I realized this was hocus pocus, and uh, I said to my parents that I was not going to any more witch doctors, uh, and so forth. And that started a division, uh, which I call stigma, where uh, when people hear that you have a disability, there's immediately a stigma as to what it is, what you can, what you cannot do, all those things. It's still true today. The yes, stigma is. Is, is there. Yeah. So that started my uh, journey on stigma because it happened to me several times since then. So you have this very personal experience with, with feeling stigmatized because of a condition that you can't help or control it. And that does that kind of pave sort of your steps in your career and yeah. your understanding. And, and so I kept on having these passing out spells. Um, my parents, uh, we had a dairy farm and we showed cattle at fairs and so forth. After that, uh, I just accidentally was never included to show cattle. And I would ask why, and they said, well, I didn't think you were interested. Well, <laughs> nobody had asked me, uh, but all of a sudden, uh, again, the stigma Again, me not knowing it was a stigma, but again, there is the stigma in that they immediately assumed certain things, uh, but also it was an embarrassment to them and that I might have a seizure and be at this public fair and, and people would know that they somebody had committed this major sin. I understood all this way after, but, okay. but I'm going through this to let you know what I was going through. And so, uh, my high school superintendent was like a father to me and was um, wonderful. Uh, I grew not to be close to my parents because of all this. And he said, you got to get out of here. He said, this small town, not opposed to small towns, but it was a small town. And he said, you got to get away and, and not be milking cows and so forth and get around different people. So I went to Loyola University in Los Angeles. It's now Loyola Marymount, but the time was Loyola University. So you go from a really small town real small up town. to L.A. The, the, the town that we mainly identified with 
had about 200 people in it. And then the bigger town was about uh, 3,000 people. And then the next town was about 17,000 people. So that's sort of what I grew up in, went to, and so forth. But we shopped at 200 people and so forth. Uh, I loved it, though, and I, uh, and I loved the people there, and I'll more more about it as we go on. But I then went to Loyola, a Jesuit university, mm-hmm. um, and fell in love with the Jesuits, fell in love with the university. Um, they were challenging and basically were determined to eliminate all you had been taught so that you would have your own t- thoughts as opposed to what somebody told you. So they would weed you out of all your, uh, not all your knowledge, but basically your assumptions as to what was going on. And I thought that was challenging and fun and, and it was exciting to do it. Uh, but I continued having my passing out spells. Um, and my roommates, you know, that was just what happened. Um, and after I passed out, I would be out for a bit, I'd come to, and, and I just thought that was the way I was going to be, you know. Uh, I was a uh, student by president in high school, I was sophomore class president at this school where I knew nobody, um, I became uh, social chairman in my junior year, then student body president in my senior year. So I was having all these passing out spells, but I didn't think there was anything negative, uh, it's just you know, I was going to live with it. Yeah, it sounds like you'd gotten to a place where you were learning how to live with it and yeah. going on with your and, life. And, and nobody successful. was discriminating against me. Nobody, you know, I, as a matter of fact, I was, uh, people were supporting me. I was running for office and they were supporting me. So passing out spells didn't bother me, right? Um, so I, I learned to just kind of grow with it and know that that was going to be my life. And then um, President Kennedy got assassinated and my my journey was to become a trial lawyer. And so President Kennedy got assassinated. It changed my whole life. Um, I, I loved him. I loved everything about uh, uh, he and Jackie and, and so forth. And it just, it was just, uh, you know, up in the clouds for me. I mean, I just, um, and so when he got assassinated, it really hurt. And I was uh, student body president and um, uh, no, I was social chair, and uh, the dean of the law school, the dean of the uh, uh, the university. Um, I was very close to him, Father Kilp, and he uh, called me and he said, "We need to go to the chapel immediately." So we went to the chapel, and I was pulling the bell and so forth, and the church filled up with our students, and there was a garden below, a huge garden, and it filled up with everybody on their knees, praying that he would come too. And of course he died. And it was very emotional. And then, as you know, then his killer was killed. And, um, and then, you know, Jackie coming back with blood on her dress and all these different things. I didn't uh, um, bathe or do anything for three days. I was just uh, devastated. So I started thinking about what am I gonna do? And, um, and being a trial lawyer all of a sudden didn't seem like the right thing. I decided that I wanted to um, devote my life to public service, to do something where I was helping people as opposed to making money. Um, And so I thought about it the whole senior year. Um, 
and to the shock of my girlfriend of six years and my fraternity brothers, I decided to become a, a priest. And I decided to become a Jesuit priest. And so at graduation, um, it was announced that I was entering the priesthood and, and so forth. It was a big deal for them and a big deal for me because I felt here I'm going to be able to do what I wanted to do. Uh, so I go through my physical and the doctor, John Doyle Sr., says to me, um, have you ever heard the word epilepsy? And I said, no. And he said, well, that's what you have. And he said, I can... Um, uh, so that's the first time, first time I heard the word. tells you that. And that I knew it related to me, but the first time I ever heard the word, I didn't know anything about it. Wow. Um, and, you know, I may have heard it someplace, but it didn't register. It didn't become a, an item, and, and I didn't relate to it, you know. So um, he said, you have epilepsy. And he said, I can uh, give you a prescription which will uh, help you. It's not a cure. You will probably still have seizures, but they won't be as severe and, and so forth, or, or off, as often. And I was thrilled. Okay, and now I know what my problem is. Um, he said, the good news is, is that um, you're now 4F and you can't serve in the military. Um, that was Vietnam. Right, so that was during the period of, of the draft. Yeah, okay. and so that was 1964. Okay. And so he said, you can't be in the military. Um, well, you know, I wasn't planning on going on the military, but you know, you're being drafted, you have to go. But okay, that's fine. Uh, he said, but the bad news is, now I, I had gotten uh, oh, 60 plus offers from people wanting me to go work for them or be involved with them because of my career and so far and so forth. And so I, you know, my attitude was, okay, that's fine. I'll just pursue um, something else. I'm thinking this as he's going along. And then he said, but the bad news is that you uh, can't be a priest because uh, the Catholic Church decided in uh, 400 AD that if you have epilepsy or possessed by the devil, uh, you can't be a priest. Um, so this decision goes back to 400 AD, yeah. hasn't been updated? Well, it has right. been, I'll tell okay. you later. Um, so uh, stigma again, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, I then um, realized that I had to go pursue one of these 60 opportunities. Um, so I started and I filled out the job applications and the word epilepsy was on every one and I marked it. Uh, I never got an interview, not one. And uh, stigma, I realized. And when you were going through that experience and you weren't getting calls back, did you know at that time that you know, this is why? Yeah, no, I knew it was because of this so-called thing, epilepsy. And when you see the word on a, you know, when they ask you, do you have this or have that? And you say yes on epilepsy. I know all of a sudden, I didn't think so at first, but after a while you realize that that's what's going on. Um, I started drinking and uh, I'd go to uh, Hill in, in uh, Los Angeles and Griffith Park. Uh, there's no hills, there's, uh, I mean, I'd go to a mountain there are no mountains, there's only hills, but if you're drinking, uh, everything is big and so forth and so on. And I'd get drunk, um, feeling sorry for myself, uh, became suicidal, um, and the, the day I was gonna do the dirty deed, um, I was drunk and I uh, heard a voice. And there was a merry-go-round at the bottom of this hill. 
And this voice said to me, you're going to be just like those little kids getting off and on the merry-go-round. You're never going to let anybody or anything stop you from doing what you want to do. I got my mojo back. So that's a really powerful moment for you. Absolutely. You almost you have this experience where, you know, you're at probably the lowest point. My lowest point. You you hear a voice that you know kind of tells you it sounds like that it, you're you're not done yet. Yeah, and and um, uh, you know I'm a devout Catholic, uh, and so it's either a voice or a thought. You know I don't know, but it was, to me at the time it was a voice. So yes, you sir. survive this this very mm -hmm. low moment in mm -hmm. your life, and you you hear this voice, and you sort of you come through it. And it sounds like you come through it with a different perspective. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I always say to people with disabilities, and I counsel a lot of individuals, um, that uh, if you have a disability, uh, because of this experience I went through, if you have a disability, you have to learn to love yourself. Uh, because of the stigma and because of everything you go through, um, you have to say you don't give a darn what people think. Um, you have to believe in who you are and what you do and so forth. And um, that voice basically said you're okay. Um, and so I was happy. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was happy. Um, and so uh, within two weeks, maybe in the last, um, a priest friend of mine, Father, Ed Markey, uh, Jesuit, um, came to me and said, uh, I have an opportunity for you. So uh, I had this opportunity to go live with Bob Hope and his family, and it turned out to be a wonderful opportunity. Now, Bob uh, Hope at the time is, um, because I was talking to my 21-year-old daughter who said, who's Bob Hope? Who's Bob Hope? <laughs> and that's what people say today when I say Bob Hope. Who's Bob Hope? I have to explain. <laughs> So he was a very famous individual at the time, and you know was he was um, the top TV personality, yeah. a comedian, of course, but was in a lot of movies, uh, uh, you know, slapstick type movies and so forth. But he was very, very powerful and famous. Now, at the time, I knew he was, but I didn't realize how famous he was and so forth. You know, I'm a naive college kid who, you know, okay, this is another little journey. Let's go down this one. Um, but he became wonderful to me, and, um, and uh, I always cherish that friendship until he died. Um, the, so one day he says to me, uh, a lot of different stories there, but not important to this. Uh, one day he says to me, we're driving, um, and he says, uh, you think you have a ministry, and your problem is you think it only can be practiced in a church. A true ministry is practiced in sports, entertainment, business, government, but where you belong is in politics. Now, I had never thought about that, but he knew about my background, and um, he made a suggestion. I thought, hmm, interesting. Um, you know, I'd been in politics, but I didn't think it was politics, right? Um, and I was a believer in myself, and I said, that's interesting. So uh, that was all he said. I listened to it. Uh, I then wrote a letter to my congressman who I didn't know. 
Um, and it was basically a strange letter and that basically said, you lucky devil, here I am and <laughs> you should hire me. Uh, <laughs> so you write this letter to your congressman that says, I, I'm available to I'm be available. hired, <laughs> I, you should hire me, you're lucky I'm here. Yeah. And he didn't know me and I didn't know him, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but he was looking for somebody young. He was looking for somebody with an agriculture background because well, it's a huge agriculture area. Which you definitely had. And so he wanted somebody because he never had anybody with an agriculture background in his office. So he wanted somebody with an agriculture background. He wanted somebody who wasn't far right, far left, somebody who was sort of in the middle, which I was, I am. Um, and he said... Um, uh, so that was it. So I wrote, so I, he, his chief of staff uh, called me one day after the letter was there. I didn't, hadn't received a reply, so I didn't know. Uh, and I was still living with hope. So it wasn't that I needed a job and so forth. It was, I was there um, living with them in a great room, a great house, and great everything. He had uh, famous people come in for dinner and so forth. So it, it was Found the President of the United States, so Lyndon Johnson would call, and Barry Goldwater, he was very close to, would call. And I'm around all this, you know. So, so it was you're like around all these political yeah, figures. Yeah. And it was exciting. Uh, so the Chief of Staff called me and said, uh, uh, the Congressman's going to be in Los Angeles uh, on such and such day, it was around Valentine's Day, uh, for uh, dinner uh, there, and he would like to meet with you. Um, there's... Uh, uh, probably 15, 20 minutes that he can talk to you, but he would like to meet with you. What I didn't know is that he called my uncle, who was very involved, uh, he was head of this dairy organization, and was was close to him, and my uncle said, you know, he, he would be good for you, blah, blah, all that stuff. And because I was related to somebody he really knew, uh, it became interesting for him. So I go to the interview with him, um, instead of 15, 20 minutes, it lasted 45 minutes. And um, we, we connected. Um, and he said, uh, I'm very impressed. I'm going to go back and talk to my chief of staff, and we'll have to work it out. Money's an issue, and, you know, typical, all that type of stuff. We want to hire you. Yeah. But. but <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I walked away from there saying, I'm hired. That's great. I felt, so I felt positive. Yeah. About it. And the mojo's back, right? Yeah. And so um, within a few weeks after that, um, I get a call from the chief of staff saying, we're sending you a letter. Uh, the congressman would like to uh, hire you, um, uh, but you'll see in there some of the restrictions and so forth. And I was starting at $6,000 a year. Um, now, that was big to big me. Big money then. It was, you know, I was... Uh, working on the dairy farm, we didn't get paid. You know, we we're family, so you never get paid. And I'd never worked for anybody, right? So, you know, except the family. So $6,000, I went, whoa, that's a lot of money. That's great. So I said yes. So <laughs> the I get there, I get an apartment and so forth. Um, and this um, person now, my superintendent, Bob Hope, and now the congressman become real strong factors in my life. And the congressman and I um, really got along. He didn't have any sons, he had two daughters. We became, I became the son, and when I got married, uh, we had dinner at their house uh, 
four nights a week or something like that. We went to all the football games with him, all the baseball games with him, and we became, my wife and I became a member of the family, and we were very, very close to him. And, um, Is this Congressman Sisk? Sisk, S-I-S-K, yeah. from Central Valley of California. Yeah. And he'd been there 20, he was there 24 years and very powerful. Um, but he was great. He, I'd have a seizure and tell everybody, just calm down. Tony's going to be fine. He'll come out of it. And when I came out of it, back to work. Let's get it done, you know, and so forth. It was so just, it's not a big deal at all. It was all. not a big deal with him. Just not a big deal. No questioning of me. Not, not just, okay, so he has a seizure. Uh, that's fine. And that was, you know, very comforting to me. Um, and it just made me stronger, you know, that here this guy in a far powerful position. It sounds like this is one of the first times yes. that you receive acceptance. Yeah, total acceptance. For a disability. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was powerful um, that I didn't have to hide it. I didn't have to, um, I just could really be myself, you know. And, and, um, and when I proposed to Phyllis, I told her, I said, there's one problem. And she's thinking, whatever. And I said, I have epilepsy. And I said, I have these seizures. And I don't know if it has an impact if we have any kids, because we don't know if it's hereditary or not. But I just want you to know. And her attitude was not a big deal. Um, but you know, you, you're constantly thinking about these things, you know. But I, I uh, ended up with him uh, going out to the district a lot. Um, and he would tell me that when I retire, I want you to take my place. It took him a long time to get there, but when I retire, I want to take your. Hey, I want you to take my place. Which you did eventually yeah. do, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. And when he retired, um, he uh, I was going through all this was fun, um, but uh, he called a meeting in Fresno um, uh, with his two daughters, his wife, and me. Um, and so we have dinner, and we're all knowing that he's going to, thinking that he's going to say he's going to retire, because they wouldn't call a meeting like that. Uh, so we have dinner, and then we go back to uh, the living room, and we're sitting there, and one of the daughters who I was very close to said, the suspense, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> and so he comes in, and he said, uh, I just want to tell you something, um, uh, with his wife, and he says, uh, we're retiring. And he says, if it gets in the newspaper before I public announce it, I'll know who it is, meaning you, his daughter, or me. <laughs> and he said, and I'll change my mind. And so, you know, obviously we didn't say anything. Uh, but uh, I waited two days after his announcement and then announced I was running. During the campaign, um, my opponent um, uh, said at a dinner one night, um, he said to, to supporters, he said, um, I don't know if you know it or not, but Tony's a very sick man. He has epilepsy, has seizures, and what would you think if he went to the White House to argue something critical for us, such as water? Water in Central Valley is the big issue. Very big issue. Yeah. And he said, and had a seizure. So your opponent in the race basically outs you, like with a mm -hmm. disability, and uses that as you know a strategy to campaign against you. Right. And this is your personal information that had that had to feel horrible. Not not really. Okay. 
because uh, I had never been quiet about it, you know. Uh, people knew, but I didn't have a story about it, you know, so a lot of people didn't know, but I was, you know, I, I got my mojo when I didn't, I got my mojo with uh, I Hope, I got my mojo with Sisk, and that he accepted me totally. So I, I felt good about who I was, and as a matter of fact, I said then and I say today that I thank God for my upbeats, because it made me a different person, a better person. Uh, I could feel for other people, um, and I don't know if I'd ever had would have done that if I hadn't had epilepsy. So uh, when he does that, when your campaign opponent does that, um, you know, talks about your epilepsy in the campaign, you know, and says that to supporters, it sounds like you were kind of already living with it. Yeah. And like, okay. Yeah. Tell fine. them something about me that they yeah. don't know. Yeah. yeah. So it was interesting, though. Uh, that night after the dinner, I got several phone calls from people who were at the dinner, very upset, and said, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to vote for him because of this, and we're sorry that he brought I said, it's okay, um, but the next day I get a call from a reporter, um, and he said, I understand that your opponent last night said X, um, what's your reaction? And I said, um, <laughs> uh, Oh, in the 13 years I worked for the congressman, I knew a lot of people who went to the White House and had fits. At least I'd have an excuse. And it was funny. And that gets printed? Printed. It, it was in People magazine. And oh, so my forth. goodness. Yeah. Um, and it's repeated several times. And everybody laughed, you know. Um, and so I took the sting out of it right away. You changed the narrative. I changed the narrative, right? And so um, people would ask me about it in a positive way. Well, you know, what is it? Are you okay? Blah, blah, blah. And it became a signature for me in a positive way, and particularly with the way I handled it. And so I... You made it okay to talk about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So and, people feel comfortable approaching you and asking yeah. you questions. And, and you know how many people came to me that had a disability or had seizures and family members saying, I appreciate your being so honest about this because we're going through this and so forth. Wow. And so I was more emboldened, you know, I, I just felt great about it. I easily won my campaign um, and I won elections after that uh, by a large margin. Uh, Republicans came after me, but it didn't have an impact. Um, and uh, uh, so then when working for the congressman, I would uh, suggest things that we could do in regards to um, disabilities and so forth, and he was very open to doing anything. Um, so even when you're, before you're a congressman and you're working for Congressman Sisk, you start to think about disability yeah. advocacy. Yeah, because I, you know, people would come up to me because I was so open, and they would talk about the struggles they were going through, and uh, how their child was not protected or how they as an individual were not protected. People don't realize uh, at that time uh, if uh, you were in a wheelchair uh, that you could be kicked out of a theater, you could be kicked out of a restaurant, you could be kicked out of anywhere and it was legal. Yeah. If you were blind and you went into a restaurant and asked what was on the menu, uh, they could kick you out for being a nuisance and it was legal. And in an uh, even sadder reflection, uh, culturally somehow acceptable to do that. The stigma. Yeah. 
the stigma was there and all that was legal um, and I started to realize that and you know it it all of a sudden um, turned me into uh, an advocate you know, never I never was an advocate I just was comfortable with who I was you know mm -hmm. you know I was able to do things and I didn't know that other people were struggling and so forth but as people came up to me talking about their problems all of a sudden I realized this is an issue um, and I didn't know at the time there was a big grassroots effort involved so uh, is this like the 1960s or 70s yeah, 60s, the 60s. Yeah. okay yeah and and then and the, I ran in 78 so it was the 60s uh, when I went through my struggles and so forth but by the time I ran in 78 it was really obvious uh, people were having difficulties and would come to me and so forth and nothing, nothing we could do wasn't the law um, so then I get elected and I decide that with my district which is agriculture and water I say to folks uh, look at um, I'll do anything uh, on agriculture and water that is needed uh, but in regards to social policy uh, I want to be the consultant. I want to be able to explain to you why it's important to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and I'm your consultant uh, for two years. And if you don't agree with what I'm doing, you can kick me out. But during that two-year period, I want the ability to be able to uh, go into some areas and, and educate as to why. And everybody accepts that. You know, it's not a not an issue. And so, I started dealing with. Uh, disability issues and people having trouble with an agency getting kicked out of the military because of X Y and Z and a lot of false things happening as a result of the fact that you could discriminate you know and uh, a lot of stories in that area and so um, I realized that something had to be done here and so I started talking to um, there was a a disability council uh, presidential level and the chair and the co-chair came to me one day two women uh, both had a child with a disability and the uh, vice chair uh, the chair was from uh, Connecticut uh, the vice chair was from um, uh, Colorado and her husband was a good friend of mine and I knew about the son. But her husband was a very close friend, a confidant. And, uh, and so they come to me and say, we're working on uh, legislation dealing with uh, disabilities and why and so forth. And I said, I understand that. Was this, by chance, was this Sandy Perino? Yes. Yeah. How do you know that? I did my research. Really? <laughs> Great. Yeah, so she was a big player. She was the chair. Yeah. And Roxanne and, Vieira was the vice chair. Yeah. And they were they were advocating. They, they were, were huge. They were, out they were there. working with yeah. the Reagan. These uh, moms were tough. <laughs> yes, they were yeah. tough and aggressive. And so they came to me and said, um, "We would like you to lead the effort." So then we worked on the legislation a bit. And, and this is the legislation that would later become. It was a, it the, was the the framework for the, the framework. ADA? I should yeah, say not not the legislation, but the framework. Yeah. And so what I didn't realize that there was a whole grassroots effort out there, University of California at Berkeley in particular. Uh, and if you saw uh, Crip Camp, um, that's the group that was very engaged. 
I knew nothing about them. I Crip do... Camp was the, the documentary, documentary that was on Netflix, yes. correct? Yes. Yeah, and it talks about this, um, this summer camp for young adults, adolescents with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And it was really, it was in the 1970s. Yes. And it was really the only place where these young people could come together, feel accepted, feel like they could just sort of be themselves. This is really beautiful documentary. Yeah. So that's what you're referring yeah. to with that. And, and some of those people became real strong advocates internationally known, like Judy Hunan in particular. Right. Um, but I didn't know that they were in existence, okay? So I'm meeting, all of them primarily Democrats, by the way. So I'm meeting with the Republicans um, and the White House and so forth uh, about this. And I think it's great. And so I say yes. And so then they recruited Senator Weicker of Connecticut, who Sandy knew. And didn't he also have a, a pretty yes. strong connection to yes. disability? He had a son uh, with a disability. Uh, I think it was Downs. Um, but his son with a disability. So these two women had children with disability. They went to Weicker, who had a son with a disability, and they come to me, uh, who has a disability. I can um, tell you, too, from my experience, because I am also a parent of mm -hmm. somebody with a disability, oh, really? okay. and there is nothing more fierce than yeah. parents That's of right. kids with disabilities. Like, Absolutely. They want to get things done. They are going to get things done. And they go so after it. They go after it. So I agree, and... Um, and so I put it in, and Senator Weicker puts it in, and he's a Republican, I'm a Democrat, he's a senator, I'm a House member. So it was bicameral, meaning House and Senate, and bipartisan, Democrat, Republican. So it was something I felt deliberately we need to do, get it away from politics and so forth. So this is the framework legislation that you guys are working on. And Senator Weicker represents the Senate component of it, and you represent Congress. The and House, the you're, House you're working with Sandy Perino, and, and you're really thinking about a way to sort of present this mm -hmm. as, as a really bipartisan effort. Right. And you, was there a part of you that knows that this framework of this legislation that later becomes the ADA, was there a part of you that knows this is going to change the lives of so many people? Um, I really didn't realize how much to be honest. I knew that it was going to change um, the law and that people were going to be able to uh, uh, get protection if they went after it and so forth. Um, I didn't realize what would really happen. So um, uh, I was, uh, you know, I, my whole attitude about things was go after them. Um, and if you think it's right, go after it. Uh, don't sit around and debate it and think about it and do the research. I don't, I just do things. If I think it's wrong, I do it. I'm sort of like these mothers who are aggressive. As a person with a disability, I'm very aggressive on yeah. disabilities. And so this was just the right thing to do. Right thing to do. Yeah. And so um, I send out a letter to my colleagues, uh, which you always did at the time, and um, and it was really a letter in those days. There's no internet, so <laughs> it was these real are letters. These letters. Not yep. type. They're, you remember, uh, I guess we call them memographed. I yeah, guess that's the yeah. right word. Yeah. Uh, I forget the word. <laughs> but it basically was printed up through a machine and so forth, blue ink and so on, and your signature was on it and so on. And I say why I'm introducing this, and I'm asking for co-sponsors. Um, and it was interesting. I got people uh, who would come up to me, House members who would come up to me, and they'd say, Democrats, Republicans, 
they would say to me, I don't like the way my son, my daughter, my wife, my husband, my next door neighbor uh, is being treated because of their disability, and so I want to help you. They had never, they probably didn't even read much of the letter. They never, they didn't look at the legislation. Um, and they just realized that there was something wrong and they wanted to help me out. So they have this personal connection, it sounds like. You know, the, the people, it almost like it starts to um, become something that people, because of their personal connection, their experiences, whether they have a disability or they have a loved one with a disability, even though they're in policy, politics they're still people and they want to come and support this yeah and and i was uh, chairman of the house campaign committee so ran uh, you know 300 campaigns uh, and sometimes more eat every two years and got people elected and they became to a great extent loyal to me and wanted to be helpful to me and so when you after all this time that i'm helping i now am democratic whip uh, which is the third highest ranking position in the House of Representatives. So, so when I put something in, um, I'm not Joe Smith. Uh, I have a history with these members. And so Democrats and Republicans come to me and realize that I'm serious and realize that um, some of them didn't even know I had a disability. Um, and so I um, get all these people and and so I get over 50, I think it was 52, but I can't remember for sure. sponsors So then um, Senator Weicker puts it in, and he gets his co-sponsors, Bob Dole, who's the minority leader, uh, who has a disability. Now, Weicker doesn't, but Bob Dole does. He gets Ted Kennedy, who is the Democratic power. Bob Dole was the Republican power. He gets Ted Kennedy, who was the political power, Democrat, Republican, he was the strongest person uh, in the Senate at the time, who had a sister who uh, was institutionalized. Uh, she, and in later um, sort of analysis of the family and, and his sister Rosemary, Rosemary had an intellectual disability. That's right. And then he had a son who developed cancer and one leg uh, just above the knee was removed. Um, and uh, there were other problems within the family, all dealing with disabilities. Mm -hmm. So he was a strong advocate. Uh, and then you had Tom Hark, excuse me. Then you had Tom Harkin, whose brother was deaf, and Tom would do sign language with him and so forth. And Tom was really committed. Uh, so you had these two Democrats, and then you had Orrin Hatch, uh, Mr. Conservative, uh, the leading conservative in the Senate who had kind a, of a super Republican from like Utah, right? Utah, yeah. right. But real conservative, a wonderful man, but very conservative. He was very close to Ted Kennedy, which was interesting. The two of the strong liberal, the strong conservative, they were very close. I did not know him, um, but he joins uh, because he had a brother or sister, I can't remember for sure now, uh, who had a disability, plus, um, the Mormon Church, very pro-disability. And I didn't know about that until we have this uh, hearing and I testify and I go through why this in legislation is important to me and why it's This is this joint yeah. subcommittee hearing? Yes, ma'am. There's, there's video 
of that day. There's video of your testimony and what struck me about that day. I mean, you have all these co-sponsors, but when you watch the video, it pans onto the room. And I think the room had a capacity of like 700 people, yeah. but it's, it's just packed. Mm -hmm. And there are so many people with disabilities yeah. present. And there are people with people who are blind, people who live with, you know, being deaf, people who have physical disabilities, there are people in wheelchairs, there are people with intellectual disability, there are families, caregivers. I mean, that room is, is really packed. And Don't forget what I told you earlier is that there was a grassroots community out there that was really interested in working on let's do something, right? So, so are they all kind of, is that, is that grassroots that's presence? That's grassroots. They're there. Yeah, they're there. And there's a lot of, there's this, just this real emotional sentiment that's yes. kind of rare. People are yeah. really telling their stories. And yeah. on, uh, on your testimony, you're, you're sharing your, you know, your experience. My, my testimony was very raw. Yeah. It, it went through uh, my personal experience and why and the stigma and why we needed to change it and so forth. It was well received. Um, Kennedy, when I finished, Ted um, uh, thanked me and he said, um, Orrin Hatch was the ranking Republican, and he said, Orrin, I'll let you go first. And Hatch was emotional about it. Um, and he said, um, I just want you to know that in my church, you're considered a child of God. And he said, um, we uh, support you and I will aggressively support you. And then Ted talked about his family, and he was totally supportive. And of course, the crowd was overwhelmed, you know, and so forth. What uh, were some of like, I mean, this is a big, big day mm -hmm. in disability rights. I mean, mm -hmm. this is the first time that you're, you're presenting, you know, possible legislation that's gonna address discrimination, that's gonna address the stigma, and you're presenting some really authentic testimony. What what were some of your emotions when you received that support from your colleagues? It was interesting. I look back at it later, and um, and I've looked at the video of it, and I've thought you should have been more nervous than you were. I wasn't nervous at all. Um, uh, if you watch the video, I'm very determined. Um, I'm raw. I'm open, um, but I'm firm. Um, about what is needed and why. You seem to have this this conviction yes. in your testimony. Mm -hmm. Again, kind of like this is the right thing to yeah. do. Yeah. yeah, and so I, I, <laughs> I look back at it today and realize um, just how lucky I've been in my life um, and that all these opportunities I've talked about um, have come to me and um, you know, I work hard, I agree with that, uh, but if you don't get opportunities, uh, you can't really do much. And uh, I've just been very fortunate, and I look back, as a religious person, I look back and say, maybe that's the reason um, I didn't commit suicide. Um, and, but that particular moment and the way I was received, um, because I didn't know Ted Kennedy. I knew who he was, of course, uh, but I didn't know him. And I didn't know Orrin Hatch, and I didn't know Bob Hope, uh, Bob uh, Dole at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I had met Harkin, but really didn't know him well. 
So I was in front of these giants. Um, you know, I was the whip of the house, so I was elected. But these folks were giants to me, um, and I respected them tremendously. And I became close friends with every one of them. Um, now, when that hearing ha was held was not in the uh, term when I introduced the bill. Uh, we adjourned uh, the Congress and then had a new Congress, uh, went through an election, new Congress. So in the next Congress, as I'm talking about, this was led by leaders in the Senate, real leaders, and, and two of them who have disabilities. Uh, so or one had a disability, the other three have family members with disability. And then on the House side, I'm the third ranking member. Um, I have a disability. And others in the House had members of their family with disabilities. A lot of things are happening at this time, too. Like, it, you leave Congress, uh, there's a whole you know, presidential election, we have a new president in place, it, you, you know, it transfers from Reagan to Bush. Um, and a lot, it sounds like, you know, the ADA is still live. Very much. But a lot of people are kind of passing it forward. They're right. just, you know, and it, so it's been introduced, but it's still not signed into law. The legislation yeah. is still in process. Right. And and Reagan um, appointed these people, but wasn't an advocate. Um, um, you know, little did he know at the time that he would end up with a disability, um, but he wasn't an advocate. But what was most unfortunate was that Papa Bush came in, as I call him, and he and I became very close. Um, he came in and he was an advocate. He had a daughter at uh, age four died of a disability and uh, had a son uh, who has a disability. Um, so H.W. Bush has the lived experience mm -hmm. of being a parent. He was a parent and as you said earlier, uh, and Barbara Bush was a strong advocate. She was and, mom. And yep. so he was also though. <laughs> okay. Um, and so uh, he became a strong advocate for us. And, and I don't know if it had been Reagan, uh, if, uh, if that would have been the case. So Bush sort of takes this as he, kn he knows, yeah, and he has a personal connection to this. He knows about the ADA. So it sounds like he's pretty committed, and he says as much in his first term. He's like, yeah. this is the most important legislation that we're going to get passed. Yeah. And in a book uh, that his daughter wrote, a biography, he says in the book, uh, this is the most significant thing I did in my uh, presidency. That's, that, yeah, now, that warms my heart. <laughs> yeah, so um, I hear that um, John Sununu, his chief of staff, is strongly opposed from a business point of view that it would burden business people and, and so forth. And um, when I talked to him, he said, you know, I'm not against uh, what you're trying to get done, but it's just too broad and it has, I think, a huge negative impact. And I'm going to recommend a veto. Um, oh, so he's not even... He's not even really looking to just limit the scope of it no. or sort of pare it down. Yeah. He's like, just no. Yeah. And so, um, so uh, interesting story. I called uh, Papa Bush and um, I said, I just talked to John and he says X. And he says, Tony, don't worry about it. Uh, just don't worry about <laughs> so, it. So, I love, so, so you have this conversation with Sununu and he's like, no. Yeah. And you're like, all right. 
I'm just going to go around you. Yeah. Like, I'm going to go right to Bush. Well, what I didn't know is that Kennedy also went around him uh, and had a very strong meeting with Sununu. Um, and the president, of course, was not in that meeting, but uh, knew what was going on. So there was a lot of movement there. On the House side... Um, so back that, that meeting, actually, between John Sununu and Ted Kennedy, that was... There was... This, this actually makes... A lot of history yeah. this meeting and it's uh that meeting is is held orrin hatch is there mm-hmm. a lot of the players that you mentioned yeah. who were part of drafting and pushing the ada through and it gets pretty heated like yeah. between sununu and ted kennedy where they're they're arguing and at one point ted kennedy just like he, he gets up he kind of yells at sununu and calls and accuses him of like fly specking and you know really trying to limit the well, legislation well, what had happened is that uh, one of uh, Harkin's staff people uh, disagreed with the comment that Sununu was putting out there. And Sununu uh, basically said, you don't have uh, a right to make some comments and so forth. Ted Kennedy got up and said, if you're going to talk to somebody, you're going to talk to me, and you're not going to talk to me that way, and so forth. And was in his face, aggressively telling him. So what I told you earlier about the commitment of him in that meeting he was very aggressive and yeah. tough and so it sounds like he was just holding his ground yeah like, he yeah. and he did and Sunu backed off i and, heard i read that orrin hatch is like the one who's just trying yeah, to make peace like yeah, look guys calm, calm down, down calm we down. gotta get through yeah. this yeah and so then Sunu said uh, uh, let's uh, get rid of staff and let's just as members let's get this through and so ted kennedy said well that means you should go too which is the best comeback ever, right? right? And so uh, no, nobody left the room. Nobody <laughs> leaves, yeah. So, uh, so I get called in by the majority leader uh, and speaker, and the bill is too broad, and the public's going to react negatively to it. And it happened to uh, members at um, a legislation dealing with I think it was Medicare or something where the public went bananas and they reversed and recalled and eliminated the bill and so forth. So they think that that same thing's yeah, going to happen what's too to the big. ADA. And it was. <laughs> it was very big. It was. And, you know, in hindsight, right, you know, look at the ADA and it, and it was big because there was so much we needed to accomplish yeah. to make things equal. Well, and the thing is, what people don't realize, 25% of our population has a disability. disability. And yeah. if you include parents and if you include caregivers, you know, we're talking about half the population is yeah. involved with disability. So, uh, sure, it had to be big. It had to yeah. be broad. So, And it had to cover different settings. Like, it had yeah. to cover work. It had to cover school. It had to cover... You know, state government. State government. County government. Telephone. City government. Government. And a really important point, too, from the disability rights community that was so striving for independence yeah. was we need public transportation to be accessible. Right. That right. was a big, Absolutely. big point for them. Yeah. So it had to be broad yeah. in scope. But it, it was all over the place, right? Yeah. Uh, and so he said, uh, you'll need to do that. Now, uh, my mojo again, right? Um, <laughs> so I'm elected by the Democratic Caucus to my position. Uh, the speaker is elected, the majority leader is elected, all three of us are elected. I think I have just as much influence as they do, right? So I say no. I said, uh, I'm committed to this and uh, I want to, if I don't get the votes, that's fine, but I'm determined to get the votes. 
and I'm not going to withdraw it. So what does he do? He then assigns it to seven different committees and about 15 different subcommittees and in a way to slow it down and... Um, this is Sununu that does that. No, no, we're talking about the House leadership. House leadership. So they send it to all these different committees and everybody reviews it and it just starts to like kind of... Well, that was the intent, okay? Gotcha. So then what we came up with was a strategy of, okay, let's pick the subcommittee that's most favorable. So we go to Major Owens from New York, uh, and he was chairman of a subcommittee in the Labor Committee, and he was all for it, and he was aggressive. He turns out to be a really big ally. Absolutely, because he started the ball rolling. Okay, So we get it through that subcommittee, then it goes to the full committee. We get it through the full committee because uh, the full committee chairman is uh, uh, for it as well. And so we get it out of one of the committees. There's another broader thing here, too, is that as the legislation goes through these subcommittees, as you start talking about these businesses, as you start talking about things like accommodations, it's now really starting to change the narrative mm -hmm. from, the, okay, we, you can't even think about kicking someone out of your theater anymore right. because they're in a wheelchair. That's right. You're, you have to accommodate them. The law is saying that. Or the blind, or the, you know, or, hearing yeah. impaired, you know, just Anybody everybody. else. And. Like that, yeah. that level of discrimination now is, is you know, something Done. that. Yeah, in the past. Done. Yep. Um, and so uh, we, looks like we're going to lose the vote in, in uh, the subcommittee on transportation. Um, and so uh, fortunate for me. Uh, it's Norm Mineta from California, who's the chairman of that subcommittee. And fortunate for me that when I was in the Congress, um, Norm had put through a bill dealing with reparations for the, the families, the Japanese Americans that were put in camps as a result of a major negative situation where we put all these Americans in camps, took away their property and so forth because we questioned their loyalty to the United States and they might be loyal to Japan instead. A real dark time in our history of our Definitely. country. Um, and so he wants this reparations bill um, and he, get it out, he gets it out of committee and we have it scheduled for a vote. And I'm the whip, so I'm in charge of getting the votes, right? So the speaker calls him in and says, um, uh, we, uh, there's problems with this bill. We can't, we don't have the votes. And so I'm going to pull it from the schedule if it's all right with you. Ah. So Norm comes to me and says, the speaker just told me X. And I said, you tell him no. I have the votes. You tell him no. I'm committed to it. We have the votes. So he tells him no. We get it through that subcommittee on a 21 to 20 vote. Now what I say to Norm, who was waffling a little bit. I said, Norm, you remember the Reparations Act? Of course. I said, this is my Reparations Act. Oh, wow. Because, yeah. you know, his family his, were put in these camps. Yes. So I understand his emotion about yeah. the Reparations Bill. But this is something that's personal to me just as well. Yeah. And so he said, yes. And so you still stay involved oh, working really closely yeah. with Steny. And, you know, for the disability rights community, 
when when the legislation gets kind of stalled, yeah. right? It's like 1990, and it's it's going through all these subcommittees, and um, the the disability rights community is is really frustrated, like mm-hmm. that this this isn't legislation they want. This is this is legislation that they need. They need. They needed it, Absolutely. and that they can't function without it. And and the sentiment, and, and the, thing, the passion. I think the thing to remember is they had a sense of success, right? It was close. It was close. And they needed to push. So they pushed, they, they organized this, this rally, this incredible rally. And I think at the time, and, and um, I was talking about it with my daughter who said like this was so punk rock, right? Yeah. This is the time, it's called the Wheels of Justice Rally. Right. And um, they're organizing outside the Capitol and there are a, a lot of disability rights advocates. There are people with disabilities. There are parents and caregivers with disabilities. There, it's out, it's a it's a day in March in 1990, it but very hot. it was a hot day. Like it was humid, the way only Washington D.C. can get, and you know, really warm. And after uh, the the rally, the disability rights advocates to to really demonstrate their struggle of what it's like to live without the the accessible accommodations that you are to improve accessibility that they're asking for they climb the capital and what steps. happens is that one person decides the way to do this is to get out of her wheelchair and climb the steps when she did that a bunch of others got out of their wheelchair and climbed they the steps follow her. and it's called the crawl the capital crawl yeah it later becomes known as the capital crawl. crawl and so and, and there were chairs all around, and senators would be coming in to vote, and they had to go around the chairs, and they were upset because they had they were inconvenience. And our position was, we're inconvenienced every day. This and, is our life. Yeah, and, and uh, it, it passed easily when it got to the floor, but it was a demonstration on the Senate side, but it had a huge impact on the House, and had a huge, huge impact publicly. So there's a lot of media at this Wheels Absolutely. of Justice rally. And there's one, I think she's like an eight-year-old girl, and she has cerebral palsy, and her, her name is Jennifer Keeler. And she is so doggedly determined to get up those steps. Yeah. And it's not a short trek. Like There's, no, there's like are, 80, 90 the, steps to get up there. St- and they're steep, and too. And they're steep, yeah. yeah. And so she's really climbing the steps, so she's shouting, like, I will, if this takes me all night, I am going to do it. I'm going to get to the top and so and it's you know and it's hot and you really see like and I think it might be the first time that a lot of people in the public see that you know the struggle the the real struggle for people with disability um, the determination the fierce determination that they put forward and that you know these are people that are actually really really strong like they're 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 accomplishing something you know and as a group and she finally gets to the top and you know there's a lot of media coverage did you watch that video were you there yeah. did, mm-hmm. what was your sort of your reaction to that well it was what we needed yeah it was a spark um, because you know before you intellectualize that this is needed because people talk about it it's in the press so forth and so on uh, people with disabilities were pushing by meetings and so forth. But this was a public demonstration of what those folks in the wheelchair were going through. And they showed it, emotion was there, uh, they showed it, 
and the reaction was tremendous. Yeah. Uh, it had a huge impact. Um, and uh, there's a children's book now about. Oh really? Yeah, about Jennifer Keeler. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. It just got published. It's called All the Way to the Top, and it's oh. about her story and yeah. disability rights advocacy and. Yeah, that that just came out, yeah. and so it's it's now culturally recognized in the disability rights community as like a really pivotal yeah, event. Is. Yeah, because it it got the media more engaged. The media was not that engaged, but it got the media more engaged, and it became a, a rallying cry um, that the legislation was needed. Um, my gut is that we probably would have got there. Uh, because of the people who were leading it. Uh, but this was a tremendous spark. I mean, this was a real emotional public uh, spark. Um, so it had a huge impact. Uh, it just verified uh, what we were all trying to say. Um, and there's nothing like a picture um, to show things. Those visual images, there, there's yeah. video that's posted of the, what's now called the Capitol Crawl, yeah. and it's, it's really, really moving. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, we start uh, negotiating. That's when you come up to the uh, Sununu uh, problem, and, and uh, the president is totally there. Uh, and that was a huge moment. And then he has the signing out in the South Lawn, and thousands of uh, those of us with disabilities were there. So that's an amazing day. Um, there's video uh, of that signing ceremony. So now, you know, it's made it through. The ADA's made it through, and Bush is committed to signing it. He basically tells you that yeah, we're going to get this through. Yeah. Um, and so they do this ceremony, and it's it's a. But really I might say that there were staff people uh, in the White House who totally disagreed with Sununu. And those people worked with the community uh, and so forth. But Sununu was chief of staff, so he had influence and he would recommend a veto and that it would always have an impression with the president, uh, whatever president. And so his veto uh, could have been uh, uh, hurtful. But he said to me when, he said, when I said, he said, well, I'm going to recommend a veto. And he says, I know what you'll do. You'll call the president, and he'll agree with you, but I'm going to do my job. And so Sunu, Sunu and I, Sununu and I, as a result of that, became friendly um, because he did what he felt he had to do, but he knew that he was going to be overruled. So that's really interesting because, you know, the ADA is now 31 years old, 32, 32, 32 years old. It, uh, the legislation turned 30 in 2020. And John Sununu tweets, um, you know, July marks the 30th anniversary of the ADA, one of many pieces of domestic legislation passed by George H.W. Bush. Positive impact still ripples through the disability community. Honored to be a part of the panel on the ADA. Now so, he was on a panel afterwards, and and I think he real you know he did his job, which was telling the president what he knew and heard, which was the community. We had the Chamber of Commerce with us, okay, but he was reacting to, and he was he's a very devout conservative, you know, he's much there, and so from his perspective, I could do that. I. I never worried about it too much because it wasn't going to have any influence, right? 
Um, but 30 years later, he's now looking back and saying, this is one of the most important things I yeah, worked on. Because George H.W. Bush said his, 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 and I'll tell you a story about this, about his legacy. And Sunna was close to Papa Bush. And so I think what he's reflecting on is that he was part of this, maybe from a negative point of view, but he was part of it. And he's very proud of his time with H.W. And I think all he's reflecting in this is that I was part of that and it's a very important thing. He you know, doesn't say that he was opposed or that he, but why do you, why do you have to? It seems to me, and I, I don't, people ask me about that all the time and I say, I that doesn't bother me at all. He did a job that he, and he knew that the president was going to uh, be against him. And I think it speaks to the legislation yes, it and does. the impact. You know, 30 years later, he's able to look at this and, you know, I don't know, John Sununu, if you're listening to this, it seems like, you know, you yeah. looked back and said, this really was yeah, so important. Absolutely. You do so much work and you stay with that work and you continue to advocate. Are you starting to see some of the impacts of the ADA? Yeah. Well, you know, um, Bill Clinton becomes president and the Justice Department, he uh, makes Attorney General Janet Reno. Janet had a disability. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so, the head of the Civil Rights Division she puts in place uh, is uh, a supporter and so forth. So what happens is that now, um, how do you know where people with disabilities are? How many are there? Where, you know, when you do different things, you know what the population is and so forth and so on. So we had to go through a process, and it took me 25 years, go through a process of identifying, and I'm out of Congress, but, Clinton has put me in charge of the President's Committee to Hire People with Disabilities, and I'm chairman of it pro bono, but I'm running this agency. And so uh, then he makes me uh, uh, co-chair or vice-chair, but task force of cabinet officers in regards to getting adults jobs, but it, it's, I forget the proper name. So you're working on the, the, the very thing, you know, and again, I, I'm, I'm like, as a parent of somebody with yeah. a disability, that is such a big issue for young yeah. adults with disabilities. You know, I, I, I worked with someone who identified on the neurodiversity spectrum, who I remember him saying to me very poignantly, like, I'm not asking for accommodation so I can do less. I'm asking for accommodation so I can do more. Well, I'm asking for accommodations to be able to do what other people do. Yeah. See, I take the, we're not asking for anything more than anybody else. We just want the right to be able to work just like somebody else. Yeah. Because if you work, you're being paid, you're paying taxes. For five presidents, not with the last one, uh, but five presidents, I would say to them, we're the only community in this country who wants to pay taxes. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> Willingly. Because yeah. that means we have a job. We're working. We're out there. We're And we can take care of our family. We can own a home or rent a home. We can own a car. Yeah. We can... You know, we, we can be part of society, and that's why we want to pay taxes. A lot of people don't want to pay. Not us, you know? <laughs> right. So, so but, you're part of that committee that's involved in getting people yeah. who are disabled into work. And so one of the things that the task force decided is that there's a law that uh, says that people with disabilities, women and people of color, 
uh, that federal contractors have to hire, right? Well, what we find out is we know where women are and the census tells us. We know where people of color are because the census tells us. So we can enforce the Federal Contractors Act with them, but we don't have all this data in regards to people with disabilities. So we passed the ADA, but we can't move forward. How can you measure progress? Uh, you can't, and how can you require yeah. a contractor to hire people with disabilities if we don't know that there are people with disabilities that they can deal with? So we had to get the Census Bureau to ask the question. They came back and said, we're willing to put it on the questionnaire, on the 10-year questionnaire. I said, no, can't, it can't be. It's got to be on the yearly questionnaire because we need this information now and we need it on a yearly basis and so forth. So had a fight. There, so there that advocacy, advocacy yeah. comes out like, no, yeah. 10 years is not going to do no. it. We need to know yeah. every year. And then the White House supported me on that. So we got it done every year. Um, and so uh, as a result of that, uh, we then had to get a definition of disability. There was no federal definition of disability. Oh, that's right. Okay. Then that was that was a big deal yeah. to get a definition. So it had to go through OMB, Office of Management and Budget, to get a definition that would go to the White House and be approved. Uh, that was a struggle, but... Uh, I can only imagine. But Clinton agreed to that. I want to fast forward to, since we're kind of now at 2022, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's there, and kind of to to think about, you know, things like skate parks and mm-hmm. ADA accessibility mm-hmm. and recreation. And what strikes me in hearing all this history is that, you know, in the 32 years since the ADA has been signed into law, there's now generations of young people yeah. who don't know any other way to live other than to have these accommodations to see things like curb cuts and to see the things that you know accessible buses and that you know things have in some ways really really changed when we think about like um you know things like recreation you know recreation spaces parks things like that um and creating adaptive spaces you know (coughs) why is it so important that we we go from that kind of i there are two areas in my view uh that need Uh, some push. Uh, One is getting people with disabilities uh, able to work the internet. There's no accessibility for them and in my view the ADA does cover the internet because it covers commerce and obviously the internet is commerce. Uh, During the pandemic uh, the able-bodied folks could take to the internet and get everything they wanted. They could do banking, they could do shopping, they could do everything they wanted. They could work. Work, and, but those of us with disabilities uh, can't, couldn't do that, right? And so everybody knows now that that is really a problem. In my view, just as important as the ADA, right? Because internet is gonna get stronger and stronger as we go through. It's only become more a part of our lives. Right. Yeah. The other area, in my view, is recreation in that why shouldn't young people have the same right to recreation as everybody else? Not more, but not less. And, you know, uh, my partner is a skateboarder, and he was been skating since he was 14 years old. He's now 58. Um, and 
so many young people um, that skateboarding is sort of an, an identification. It's sort of uh, something that they all do. Men and women are boys and girls, but I hate to say that. But yeah, skateboarding's a, a community. Is a community. Yeah. And and so there are people with disabilities who want to skate and who do skate. Uh, my partner, he basically uh, has two hips that have been worked on and have problems and so forth and so on, but he still skates um, and has fallen and, and hurt himself. But, you know, that's his right. Uh, but the point is, is that uh, skaters have a right to get recreation facilities to be able to skate on. And the skate is like everything else. Those uh, uh, facilities, everybody can skate on them. But people would have just... you seen some of the adaptive athletes in and there's a skate park there's a really uh, beautiful video of you know an adaptive athlete and he he used to skate doesn't skate anymore because he's paralyzed and mm-hmm. he he still uses skate parks and he uses his wheelchair yeah I've and, seen that yeah and they talk about um, you know ADA accessibility for skate parks is really you know creating a bowl where you know you can get in but you can get out because you need a lot of speed yeah. and momentum in some yeah. of those vert walls you really can't get yeah can't you know, get up you can't get up and so there's you know in one of the videos of the skate park in california where they're showing the struggles of somebody in a wheelchair yeah. like when he's in the bowl he is just ripping yeah but he needs a second person to really push him up and out of the bowl and you know when you think about like if we create these ada accessible skate spaces um all these young kids that go and use that space from their skateboards, but they might be sharing that with somebody who's in a wheelchair. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, and I think the impact is potentially what the ADA was all about. Absolutely. As, as again, I state is that individuals should have the same right, with disabilities should have the same rights as anybody else. And so they should be able to recreate just like anybody else. And so these skate parks need to have a facility that accommodates uh, people with disabilities. Others are going to look at it. Um, I tell people all the time, ADA required uh, basically that you have curb cuts, right? So who uses the curb cuts? Of course, people in wheelchairs and, and who are blind and so forth and so on. But mothers and fathers with babies in a stroller, they're not disabled, but curb cuts is an accommodation for them. Mm-hmm. Um, People who are delivering goods to the stores on the on the, in the block, uh, they use the cut, curb cut to get on the uh, sidewalk to be able to deliver goods. They're not disabled, but it's accommodation for them. And I take, for example, at airports that the you go there and they have phones. They used to. They don't need them much anymore. But they had phones that had volume control because they were uh, difficulty hearing. So you could raise the volume. Who used those? Everybody, Everybody. used those uh, because of the noise and so forth. So we have provided accommodations to make sure that people with disabilities can participate in the same thing everybody else is doing. And that's that equity. That's that's exactly. And that's, that's what the ADA is all about. Yeah. And so for skate parks. Uh, for state parks, they should be accessible for skaters. Um, and and look at everybody else. As I was going to say, will use that exit because it's an accommodation for them as well. And while they're skating, they can go up and down and do all their thing. That just like 
They always do, but those with uh, disabilities can do the same thing out. They just can't get out. And it's almost so, like you can't imagine, um, because I'm old enough, so I remember pre-curb cuts and post-curb cuts, oh, right? And, and so it's almost like you can't imagine the impact until it's done. Yeah. And then once we start outfitting all the corners with the curb cuts, everybody's use, it benefits everyone. You know? Well, here in Doylestown, uh, they have just put in the curb cuts in the last few years. Um, that's because you have... I always say to people, look, at ADA is a great bill, but if you don't have the right president, the right attorney general, the right person head of civil rights division, you're not going to have implementation of the ADA because it takes somebody to enforce it. A law is a law, but it's on a piece of paper, and it isn't applicable to folks unless somebody enforces that law. And so... If you have the right people in office, they enforce it. Are you interested in helping Delco get a new ADA accessible all wheels concrete skate park? Please go to the Delco Skate Park Coalition website at www.skatedelco.org to find out more about current Delco skate park projects, events, and how you can help support the Delco Skate Park Coalition's mission. I now have started a Quello Center on Disability uh, Rights and Innovation uh, at Loyola Marymount University in California. Your alma mater. My alma mater. And the reason I started there is because they're the ones that helped me out when I was struggling. And so I've endowed a chair there. And I'm not a center. I've endowed a center there. And we've now put 70 people through our center. It's called Quello Fellows. They come out as a Quello Fellow, which is kind of a nice ring to it. That does. Um, and th- th- everyone who goes through there has to have a disability. And it's, it's in the law school. And so our point of view is trying to get people into law. They don't have to, but trying to get people into law. Go to a corporation, go to you know, uh, a nonprofit, uh, uh, go wherever. But ultimately what I'd like to do is see them go on state courts and federal courts and that's our whole goal no other there's nothing else like it but I'm really committed to that financially but I'm also committed to that emotionally and so forth and I'm working on that all the time to make it happen and it's exciting to see with the graduation with these kids and yeah what's what's the what's the um the you know the number look like in terms of how many people are benefiting from this, these Coelho well, Fellows? we have 70 who graduated, right? Wow. And so what's going to happen is that every year we're going to keep it going. And the more money we get, the more people we can bring in, right? And it's that, that component of being able to accomplish what you want to accomplish and having the space to do that. Right. The ADA you know, in concert with another legislation, the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act, really changed the education landscape over the last 30 years. And so I think about, you know, uh, my son with autism who was diagnosed in the year 2002, um, nobody was talking about education. That When he was first diagnosed, the only thing that I was told was, 
you know, find a good preschool and, and good luck with that. Yeah. Nobody was talking about an education trajectory and, yeah. and potentially college. And, you know, because of the progress that's made and the disability rights advocacy that still continues, there's a, a college program. He's in this college program and there are supports for people with autism and he's able to function and go to college and he's not the only one. You know, and you see this impact ripple, this opportunity for these these young people that wasn't there. It just wasn't there, yeah. not even 20, 30 years ago. And that's my whole goal, is to have people be treated just like anybody else. They just happen to have a disability. Yeah. And go back to a point that you made earlier, and that is I tell people all the time, if you hire somebody with a disability, they are committed to being there on time, they're committed to doing the work, because it's important to them. And they can be better employees than other employees because this is critical for them. And so more and more people now get hired because of that. And there's a, a person in Pittsburgh, I'm chairman of her, of her board, uh, where she finds people with disabilities and plays, places them in high paying jobs. There are more and more of these groups yes. that, that work to place people with disabilities in occupations of, that they've worked toward, that they're interested in, and to a great degree of success. And, you know, that, that again, that's, that's the legacy yeah. of the ADA, yeah. that, that was not something that was available no, at all. I was all. just invited today to participate in a group in Hyannisport, uh, one of the Kennedy family members. Uh, they've started a group and going to have the first meeting in August. They've started a group to uh, involved with a venture fund uh, to put money in startup companies um, uh, for disabilities and venture fund. Yeah. I mean, that's exciting. <laughs> that is exciting. Yeah. That's really exciting. And, yeah. and so that these folks want to get people with uh, disabilities uh, involved in this business side of what's going on. There's several businesses now. The person in Pittsburgh has a disability, has two of them as a matter of fact. Um, but, but you have a venture fund now coming in to provide seed money for them to be able to be successful and to work with them, just like they do with everybody else. How much do you think the ADA influenced all those young people uh, you know, who grew up in a post-ADA America and you know, want to go into fields like special education, want to go into ventures like you just described, you know, want to be a part of, um, you know, pushing forward the civil rights issue associated with the ADA. And well, the ADA started something, right? Um, we have a lot of other laws now, but ADA started something. It can never be adopted in the Congress today uh, because of the makeup of the Congress, uh, but... They do have trouble getting things done. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, but the, the point is, it is the law of the land, and, and if we have the right people in charge of government, uh, it can be implemented and make a difference, and it has made a huge difference. It's made a huge difference. With the, with the people at the Quello Center, uh, I'm speaking to all these young people with all kinds of disabilities and wheelchairs and multiple sclerosis and so forth and so on, uh, sight impaired. I just, it, it, it was, 
exciting to talk to these people and graduate from the program. And I told him, I said, look at, um, you now have, uh, one person said, uh, you have uh, an obligation to do something. I said, when I, I said, you don't have an obligation. You have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to get out there and make a difference for others. Um, obligation implies something, in my view, that's negative, demanding. It's an opportunity that you should take advantage of. To But these kids, these kids, they're, they're uh, any age they are, but, you know, I'm 80, so that's you know, everybody's <laughs> a kid. Uh, but I, I, I said to them that basically how proud I am of what they're doing and and what they uh, can accomplish. And uh, every one of them didn't know pre-ADA. And yeah. they talked about that. They said, we don't know what it was like not having the ADA. And to me, that's great because that implies that we've made a difference already, right? But the struggle now is how do we get them to feel like they have an opportunity to succeed just like anybody else. And that's the key, you know? And they have the opportunity to do it now and opportunity to make a difference. Where who they are and what they want to accomplish is the biggest thing and the disability is the smallest yeah. thing in And world. we, this year, have four students, or four individuals, I should say, four individuals from four different countries for the first time. So it's gone international. It's gone international. There's about 70 different countries who have an ADA now. It's not like ours, and but it's a start. But more importantly, it's a recognition that people with disabilities have rights. And so it, so 70 different countries because of the ADA? Yeah, there's been a global impact. Yeah. I read that 70 different countries have some version yeah. of the ADA. And just think about what we've exported, right? We export some crazy music and some crazy films and so forth, but we've exported um, something that can have an impact worldwide in regards to people with disabilities all over the world. Um, and that is exciting. That is exciting. When you were there with, uh, it, was it over this past weekend? Yeah. And, and you're at this ceremony and you see all these young people out there who are part of the Coelho Fellows. Is there a part of you that sort of, you know, looks back on your own experience when mm -hmm. you were that age and what you went through and mm -hmm. thinks about, you know, everything that got accomplished? Yeah. I, I told them about it. I said, basically, you know, and they, you know, like, uh, people in the wheelchairs, you know, there's a lot of accommodations for them today that never existed. And uh, and they want more, obviously, right? But they, it was interesting to say, we don't, we don't appreciate what's happened to get us where we are today. So we only know what we want for tomorrow. And that, that's really how and it should be. Of course, yeah. everybody else does that. Yeah. I mean, it's not <laughs> like, you know, uh, the women's movement, the uh, people of color, the gay movement, they want more because that's what they should do. Life changes, everything changes, and you want to be part of the changes. And so it, it was, it's interesting to think about it in that 
it's and been, I think you said too, like they, they, even after the ADA passed, there was still a lot of work to oh, do. Yeah. That you know, just because some legislation gets passed, there's a great deal of work involved in maintaining it and maintaining those protections. Well, and also expanding. In other words, the internet should right because be things covered. change. Yeah, absolutely. Skate parks should be covered. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, once you get something on the books, it shouldn't be stale. Once you get something on the books, then you should expand it. You should make it grow, make it live. Yeah. Uh, Apply so it forth. to the new yeah. things that come and, forward. And the ADA is very much alive, which I love. It is alive. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tony, I cannot thank you enough for giving me this time today to talk to you about the ADA. The conversation was absolutely wonderful, especially because I, I have a personal yeah. connection to the ADA. And I, I am so grateful to you for taking this time to talk with us today. No problem. It's my ministry. It's my passion. And even though I'm 80, I haven't stopped, and I don't intend to stop. And but when you, you turned 80 this year, yes. where, where are you going next with your with your? Well, work? I, I feel I have 15 more years. And so I'm going to work those 15 more years to keep pushing. So if you say 25% of our population has a disability, 75% doesn't. And those 75% are not aware of what we struggle through, and it's up to us to educate them as to what we struggle and to have us and be included, and that 75% becomes 100%. That's the goal, is that we no longer concern ourselves with disabilities because we're part of society and it's automatic. That is the goal of ADA, is to get it there. And what I really mean is basically we don't need an ADA in the future. That is a legitimate goal. That is a, an amazing goal and absolutely support you. And I look forward to where you're going next with your advocacy and the co Yeah. <laughs> That's great. We, we need you working with us. I will. Tony, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. If you want to find out more about the mission of the Delco Skate Park Coalition, or if you'd like to be a part of our podcast, go to www.skatedelco.org. And thanks for listening.